0: Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to see full, unedited video recordings of our podcast, ask listener questions, or be thanked by name on each episode, please support the show by subscribing at patreon.com backslash southernbramble. You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light.
1: And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram. Today we have another very special guest with us. Um, they are now an author. Congrats! A um, they are doing a little bit of everything. I see them on TV, and um, they are also just a delightful human being. Whenever I see their posts on Twitter and or Instagram, everybody, please welcome Mara Starling.
0: Hello. Lovely to be here with you both as well. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Mara. We are so excited to have you. Um, I got a hard copy of your book and the audiobook so I could listen to it. So I'm, I'm one of those people that that kind of gets information from multiple places, but I usually like to have a hard copy as well because then I can go back for reference. So I am excited to have you on the show.
2: Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) I have my hard copy here with me right
2: now, right next to me, and it's under a bunch of cakes because I've been binging. (laughs) Oh,
0: I know how you feel. I got all these like lined up behind me from (laughs) reference points for getting things together.
2: Yeah, it's so strange seeing, um, I don't know, so many people, because I remember that I used to follow both of you before I even kind of exploded onto the scene in my Welshness. And it's so strange, like receiving messages from people like you two, who I've looked up to and admired for quite a while now, and being asked to come and do things like this. It's, I'm fangirling a little. Is that a thing that someone that looks like me can say? Fangirling? Or do you have to be a teenager for that? I don't know. But I am doing
0: it, whatever it is
2: absolutely
0: (laughs) you can be a fangirl at any age I'm a fangirl I'm fangirling you because I remember discovering your TikTok like a long time ago and the first one it popped up on my feed and it was so cute because you would pop out behind stones and be like are you into Welsh witchcraft and you'd be like are you into fairies and you were like one of the reasons why and you would explain something that was just kind of an off-the-cuff piece of history that I didn't know and I thought so many of those things were so fascinating I'm a history person. I love history. It shapes not only my craft, but my perspective on things. Because when you don't know the past, how can you recognize how it affects the thing you're currently experiencing? So I love your work. And I'm so I'm, I'm, we're cross fangirling here.
1: We are cross fangirling. (laughs) I um I have a, a friend who lives in the Welsh countryside who is also a witch so um this is a very exciting conversation um Wales has only through the way that other people have described it because i've never been has like captivated me enthralled me um tantalized me in every way that it could ever possibly uh want to it, it's just it seems to be like um a very fascinating place the first time that anyone has ever described it of to me is like literally just puts on like a fucking I don't know Tolkien cap or something it was like it is a land of giants and mountains it is like <laughs> it was just very deeply poetic so I'm very excited to be having this conversation about myth um, lore, legend, and, and other great witchy discussions that we'll be breaking into today. Yes,
0: all the delicious things. <laughs> well, maybe at that point, we should go ahead and break into it. Absolutely. So, Mara, I'm curious, can you, did, is it, am I understanding that you grew up in Wales, or you grew up around that, that surrounding area? Because I know you've kind of lived in multiple places throughout your life.
2: Um, sort of, yes, I grew up, so I'm from a very particular part of Wales called Anis morn, the Isle of Anglesey, which is uh, the largest island off the coast of Wales. it's it's barely off the coast. We have this uh, piece of this stretch of sea called the Menai Strait, which uh, disconnects the Isle of Anglesey from the mainland of North Wales and it's the largest island right at the top they like to forget to put it on maps it's almost like we're invisible or something but it is there because I grew up there I should hope it's there so I grew up in that area and for the first um 20 21 years of my life I didn't really move at all oh that's a lie first 19 years of my life I didn't really move at all um and I grew up immersed in specifically a very Welsh speaking culture so growing up on Anglesey most of the small rural villages on Anglesey are are Welsh speaking, so uh, my village in particular, to give you a little reference of how tiny it was, uh, I went to a school that only had 26 students in total, Um, I went to... uh, I could walk around my entire village within like 20 minutes and it was very beautiful, and very picturesque, also a little lonely, a little strange. Um, But what I love looking back at it now and reflecting is how immersed in Welsh culture we were because of all the people that lived in the village, which probably doesn't sound that impressive now that I've mentioned how small it is. It's that uh, upwards of 70 to 80 percent of the people who lived there back when I was living there were Welsh speakers, were first language Welsh speakers and we spoke Welsh as our primary language every single day. Nowadays with more people, there's this romanticization of these rural middle of nowhere places at the minute. So a lot of people are moving there. So I think the number has gone down now to 60, 65% are Welsh speakers now, but it's still a huge number considering it's a language that so many people think is dead or not in use anymore. It's not dead. I I grew up not even knowing English very well for the first um, probably 14, 15 years of my life and I did my entire education and schooling through the medium of the Welsh language. And I didn't leave Wales until I went to university when I was 19 and I moved to Manchester. Um, but before then, it was all, uh, everything was surrounding in, I was immersed deeply in the Welsh culture and language and uh, my mother tongue, my first language is the Welsh language as well, which is what I speak with my family and with my friends from back home. So yes, I'm from that area. I'm from a tiny village called
0: Aperfrao on an on the Isle of Anglesey. <laughs> You know, it's funny, I grew up in a big city, and a a suburb of a big city. So it's hard for me having that life perspective to imagine an entire childhood in such a small sort of remote place. But at the same time, I can totally see that romanticization. I mean, as someone who grew up in a city, I can completely see that romanticization romanticization you know we're gonna go with it um i can see how it's romanticized because there are so many times that i look at least in the picture it's like this gorgeous like manor house on an island and that's it and yes. it's supposedly some famous hunting lodge but i'm like i want to move there that looks really nice
1: oh <laughs> the one that that like bjork is supposed to apparently live in. she doesn't by the way right. but like the one that bjork is said to live in it's in iceland and it's like on a mountain that or it's like on a on this like valley on this island yes. out in the middle of nowhere just this little house mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah
0: I, I I've i always wanted to visit Wales I have family lineage from multiple places over in in Great Britain in general so uh Wales is on my stop of places to visit one day so I'll have to pop in and say hi oh definitely I've got the Welsh cakes at the ready
2: whenever you're ready <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm wondering, so Wales is, I mean, perhaps from, at least in the way that it's been described to me, and again, this is an outsider's perspective looking in and just going off of what's been told to me by people who have lived there. Um, But for those who are practicing witchcraft, it is, um, there are certain places in the united kingdom where i feel like really harbor witch beliefs and kind of where these witch beliefs spread out from and that's i believe sussex um uh and some other there is like a corners and i know somebody has described that before as like the four corners of like witch belief and then also we have places like wales um and and cornwall and things like that and i think Particularly because of the landscape, um, they have this like seclusion where they kind of they're able to like hold on to these for a little bit longer, as well as the fact that like Wales has an undercurrent of trying to, I, well, maybe not all of it, but like there's a independent streak that Wales has to have, right, because of its past, which I think is important to bring up. Um, But I think there's a lot of magic to be had there and people um, may be more privy to the magic of whales as kind of like this source place if um, if you're learned in witchcraft and I'm wondering what are your earliest memories of discovering witchcraft and did these kind of always grow up with you and how did this develop into who you are now as as the quote unquote welsh witch of of wales (laughs) oh gosh Uh,
2: well As you say, Wales has this magic to it that seems to inspire a lot of um, intrigue towards the unseen aspects of life. And it's always been that way, too. That's something that when I started researching, which we'll probably talk about later, the book and such, when I was researching for my book, it was something that really struck me was, how much throughout history Wales has been seen as this magical dark place shrouded in mystery. Even here, like when, uh, when I entered into the online spheres and I started speaking to witches from all the way in America and Australia, all sorts of places all over the world, It wasn't that strange to me that this place was being romanticized because yes, we have rather beautiful landscapes. We have a lot of history. There's a Celtic history to this landscape and a Celtic present to this landscape as well. Uh, And it's also just a place that's filled to the brim with magical tradition and with the revival of magic as well. A lot of the movements of Druidry, Wicca, traditional witchcraft, a lot of those movements have a lot of origins in this place. And um, if people even aren't aware of that, there's almost like a feeling that they have. But what really, really struck me was how it's been this way throughout history. Um, if you look back at the way the English used to view Wales back in, say, the early modern period. Wales was seen as a land dotted with giants, with witches, with magic. And it was almost seen as a as a call to action. If like if you were the um, the local cunning woman or cunning man of your community in, say, the borderlands of England, where you were bordering into Wales, saying, oh, actually, my ancestry is from Wales made people think you were more powerful or more intrinsically magical in some way. And reading things like that in books written by academics who have explored the, the landscape of witchcraft and magic in this place, it really inspired me and made me realise, oh, okay, there's a lot of magic to my culture. And it's important that I that I make clear that there was a reason that that touched me so much. And that was because I grew up with this intense feeling that I wasn't allowed to feel pride in being Welsh. Because being Welsh, in my mind, was this very restrictive thing. Growing up in the middle of nowhere in rurality, as I said, a lot of people romanticize it and make it into this really beautiful thing. But when I was growing up, I hated it. I absolutely despised it. I despised where I grew up. And that was mostly because I felt like an outcast in my own community. I was very um, openly queer from a very young age. I remember I came out as, originally I came out as gay. And I knew in my heart that I was trans all along. And I just didn't feel like I fit with the community because a lot of um, the culture in those areas are very male dominated or specifically cis straight male dominated. And you know, if you didn't like football or rugby or you weren't into farming and things like that, then you just did not fit in the community. So growing up, I was very much of the mindset that one day i'm gonna leave this place and i'm going to move to somewhere much more open and much more um generous to people like me places that uh, i can't wait to go to um and manchester was one of them and it's why i went there for university and stuff eventually but then i remember when i was a teenager i met a mentor, a, a, my first mentor. Her name was Julie, and she was lovely. Um, she was very much the epitome of what one might think of when they think of the uh, local witch of the village. You know, she lived in a cottage that was a 20-minute walk out of the village. Um, so I had to walk up this winding little country road to get to a house, and it you had to cross a, a bridge that was built in the 17th century, and it was beautiful, a stone bridge and everything. Um, so she, Just going to her house was already quite a magical experience. And the reason I connected with her was because at 12 years old, I was looking for something that could help me feel like I belonged somewhere, like I had a sense of power and community. And I found a book in a charity shop. I think, do you guys have charity shops over there? They're they're like thrift stores, aren't they? Um, And I found a book called Spells for Teenage Witches. And it was this tiny, kitschy little book, which was absolute, like, I still have it to this day. And it is absolutely such fun. (laughs) It's not something that I would ever recommend to anyone nowadays if they were seriously invested in going into witchcraft. But it was my introduction, and it was something that really opened this world up for me. And Spells for Teenage Witches just outlined a lot of spells that were cute and quirky for teenagers at the time. Um, I think the author's Marion Baker. And that that book had spells for things like, oh, anti-bullying and how to make friends, and those really struck me because I needed that at that point in my life. I needed some help in that area. Um, I was being bullied tremendously and I had no friends so I was very much like okay this book says it can help with that I'm gonna buy it and I convinced my mother who was always very supportive of all my passions I didn't grow up in any kind of religious household so if she said if she saw me wanting to be a witch she was very much like yeah go for it so I, I bought that book and I remember I was talking my mother's ear off about it constantly I was like so this book talks about casting a circle and it also talks about covens and it also talks about how to make a wand and oh my god mum look at this. Eventually she got absolutely tired of me and she said, do you remember Miss Franklin? And I looked at her with wide eyes like, oh, Miss Franklin, the art teacher from school. Yeah. Where's this coming from? She's a witch, she said. And I was like, no, she's not. She's just this very whimsical fat lady who rides horses. <laughs> and I was completely thrown by this idea that she's a witch. And my mum said, no, she's a witch. Go down to her house and go talk to her and see if she'll help you with this because I can't handle talking to you about wands and circles anymore. And so I went, off I went at 12 or 13 years old. I trotted along down these little winding roads and I knocked on Julie's door and she was this very large kind of larger than life character who was very um, scary to my teenage self. She looked down at me and she opened the door and she just went, yes. (laughs) <laughs> and I I kind of looked at her with like big puppy dog eyes, and I was like, My mom says you're a witch. Can you teach me everything that you know? And she did. She she took me under her wing and I learned a lot from her. And she was a um, she she saw herself as quite the folksy witch. She um was very much informed and inspired by the landscape and by the folklore of that region. Um, her her witchcraft style, so a little bit about her was that she she didn't like the idea of performing magic in the house. She called people who performed magic in the house carpet witches and she said um you know in order to get to the real magic we have to go out into the world. We have to go out to these magical places and we grew up in Wales. So we have some of the most beautiful landscapes to explore. So she would take me in in the dead of night at midnight and such as a teenager <laughs> off to these desolate areas these burial chambers on the coastal paths and uh, up these like coastal pathways and such and into the deep dark woods of like Newborough Forest on Anglesey and such and we would set up a little fire, we would burn a cauldron, she'd do some chanting and such and we'd do some trance work or we would perform some kind of ritual around a circle that we'd carve into the ground. I remember one of the most enigmatic rituals I took part in took place in a little cove, a little beach. We drew a circle in the ground and we danced around it for a bit. And we had a little kind of group that we worked with. There was, um, I think, five or six of us at one point who were all together. Uh, I, I do refer to it sometimes as a coven because we were very much a group of people who came together and practiced. But we weren't anything official. We weren't part of any tradition. We just were local people who liked magic and liked witchcraft. And we got together to dance around a fire while chanting some chants. And that was my life for a long time. And I remember um, I was very obsessed with gods and goddesses from across the world. I was obsessed with like Isis and I could probably do the whole chant. You know, the Isis, Astarte, Diana, Hecate as bringing them all into my practice. And that's when I started looking into Welsh traditions. I came across, I think it was an article about Dwen, the goddess of witchcraft and magic, supposedly. Um, online, I was looking up Welsh gods and goddesses, and I came across Cerridwen, the goddess of the witches. And I started looking into the Welsh tradition a little more, and that's when I came across a website about the Anglesey Druid order. And there was a, a group of Druids who operated on the island that I grew up on as well. And I I told Julie in my excitement, I was like, oh, my God, I found these druids. I'm going to contact them. And she looked at me and she went, oh, I know them. They're my friends. And I was like, well, you haven't introduced me, you little witch. And then I emailed the Anglesey Druid Order and I said, I live in Aberfrau currently. I'm, uh, I think I was 15 or 16 at the time. I really want to know more about the Welsh aspect of things because I know a little bit about witchcraft, thanks to Julie and thanks to the moots and such I was attending at that time. But I want to know more about Wales and how the what the context was of the Welsh magical tradition. And that's when I got an email back from this lovely gentleman called Christopher Hughes, who is also an author with Huellen now as well. And he messaged me and he went, oh, you live in Abiffraou? Well, I'm just down the road in Bedorgan in the next village over. Um, Come see me. Come have a cup of tea. We can chat about paganism. And he introduced me to a absolute plethora of magical practices which were rooted in the landscape that we were in. And the people he was um, introducing me to, the practices he was introducing me to, or the, the goddesses and such, they weren't new concepts to me. I knew about Rhiannon and Keritwen and Blodeiweth and all these goddesses and Gafes and Puich. These were all characters that I grew up with because we were taught the mythology of our land in school and such. But I did not click until I met Christopher that these things could be part of our magical tradition, our magical practice today. And so he opened that door for me. I never became a druid. Um, I didn't go down the, the the training of being a druid because I was more interested in witchcraft and uh, folk magic. But he opened the door for me to understand that I didn't need to be looking to far off places across the world to inspire my practice. I could look on my doorstep. And I think those are some of my earliest memories. And I'm very fortunate in that I had two mentors, I had Christopher and Julie, both of which gave me something different. Julie gave me that grounding in going out into the landscape and being a full-on, you know, witch who was just getting, I don't know if I can swear on him, (laughs) getting shit done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, getting shit done, that was very much Julie's point of call like it wasn't very um devotional or theistic in nature it was very much just let's do the spell because it needs to get done whereas christopher gave me that grounding in understanding the beauty of our culture the beauty of this landscape that we lived in and the magic that we can draw upon from that landscape and he also gave me a little bit of a theistic view bit because he was a polytheist he was a celtic polytheist and he was a druid so he's very devotional and their rituals they would go out to bring which is one of the um the the ancient chamber tombs that we have on Anglesey and they would perform summer solstice rituals and Halloween rituals and such and I would attend with them so those were my beginnings in witchcraft were coming to these people who really opened the doors for me and gave me a grounding in it which I'm so so grateful for nowadays and I don't know if that answers the question or if I waffled on too long there but
1: (laughs) no that was perfect I think that um it's interesting that you brought up so much how myth and the and the weirdness of how we are ingrained to be very disconnected from that. But then later, as you get farther along, hopefully in your practice, you realize that the myth actually is intrinsic. Um, because the spirits and the myth, while the myth and and the uh orthodoxy or the praxis are very not always the same, but um, those characters or those, those spirits or deities are very much real.
0: I really identified with what you were talking about, especially early on in this answer when you were saying how as a young queer person, finding your place, finding your sense of not only identity, but kind of a place of power. And one of the things that I think a lot of new practitioners or practitioners don't honestly say is, I got into witchcraft because I felt powerless. And personally, I I think we it was probably around the same age, you know, 12 time, 12-ish time period, happened to be in a, a bookstore, I think it was Books a Million, and I found uh, Raymond Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, followed by A Teen Witch by Silver Ravenwolf. And so I think we both had some teenage uh, spell books going on there. And I, I identify with that so much because as a young queer person, I had not even come out as gay yet. I didn't understand what made me so different. I Obviously, there were more than, there was more than one thing. But <laughs> I love that that was part of the identity that you kind of found within yourself and then found a support system on the outside. I think so many of us don't have that, that, that beautiful path to finding support outside of maybe your own family. And I know where I live in Texas. I did not I did not have that support. Uh, my mom was kind and she kind of waffled a lot back and forth on, on being supportive, but also being afraid for my soul. And my dad was atheist, so he didn't give a shit. And <laughs> it was just one of those things where I think many people are going to listen to this and they're going to identify with you and they're going to identify with these stories because we've experienced them and it's something that's so common, not that you're common because you're not, but it's a feeling that many of us commonly feel that brings us into this path and so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you to share that
2: absolutely and I definitely identify with what you're saying about like finding that power and that was kind of what my waffle was about at the beginning was that I felt like I couldn't have pride in my culture or in myself and this world that opened up before me and the people that I met really helped me find that pride and power mm-hmm. in myself especially um, as I said I did not feel like I, belong. I, I Belonged? Belang? Belang? Belonged in Welsh culture. And um, finding people like Christopher, who uh, was also an openly gay man, who was the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order, it kind of gave me that sense of, oh, my life isn't going to be terrible because now I have people I can look up to. And also I'm a witch. I can get stuff done. (laughs) Like, thanks to Julie, I know I now know what power that we can tap into. And it was very much a transformative thing in my life to come into this and find that power. And I hope that a lot of people can find that in witchcraft as well.
1: I'm wondering, Mara, um, can you share about what makes Wales such an influence on your craft, or at least a little bit of uh, what, whatever you can share, what your tradition um, looks like? I, I know we talked a lot about how the landscape and also the deities and spirits that are in the mythos or in the mythology, like how that is very influential. I'm sure now it has a lot more impact on you. Can you go into that a little bit for whatever you can share?
2: Of course, yes. Um, so, most people, when they are inspired by the more Brythonic tradition, specifically the Welsh tradition, um, if they are expressing a form of paganism that is inspired by the magic of Wales, most people tend to follow a more druidic or bardic tradition. Uh, you see, Um, organizations such as Obod, which is the big Druidic organization, they're very much Welsh influence and they have a lot of Welsh in there. They even call their lessons, their lessons that they send people who are uh, uh, studying to become members of Obod, they call them Gwersi, which is just the Welsh word for lesson. And they teach the Welsh um, tradition, the Bardic tradition that we have here. I do take inspiration from that. Now, the Bardic tradition, the Druidic side of things, it's very complex because people have this idea of what a druid is, which is very steeped in antiquity in the ancient world. Uh, If someone says, I am a druid, a lot of people who don't know much about druidry assume that they're referencing uh, the druidic path of say, the druids who lived um, here in Britain and elsewhere, thousands upon thousands of years ago. But what a lot of people don't know is, in the same way that, Witchcraft had characters such as Gerald Gardner, who brought witchcraft back, but also made it very modern and and included a lot of modern influence in it. Druidry has that, too. In Yolo Morganog, who was a Welshman, um, he constructed what is much of modern druidry today, and a lot of it comes from that. But I still find power and magic in that because it is part of a culture that is very much embedded in Wales and has been part of our culture now from the 18th to the 19th century onwards. So though a lot of it is modern, I still take a lot of influence from it and from our mythology and our magic. So my practice is partly inspired and informed by our mythology. We have the Mabinoki, which is our ancient Welsh literature, which are uh, mythological stories and traditions that date back to, we don't even know how far, because we know that the stories found in the Mabinoki, which is our mythology, uh, go back at least um, to, say, the medieval period, because that's when they were recorded on paper. But we also know that when they were recorded on paper, they were what was left the echoes of an oral tradition, which we don't know how far back they might have gone. And a lot of people do theorize that they're pre-Christian nature, and they go back absolute thousands of years, uh, or at least in some form, perhaps changed and altered a little. But we do have uh, a recorded mythology now. So a lot of my, my practice is somewhat inspired by that, and that's where a lot of my devotion goes towards. I'm devoted to the gods of this land, Ceritwen, Ariadnrod, uh, Lleilhau We have Poech and Araun and Gwynapnirth. We have so many gods and goddesses who a lot of pagans will probably find familiar because we see them come up a lot in in Wiccan circles, in traditional witchcraft, in all sorts of places. We see these these entities who come from our mythology coming up quite often. And I will throw some shade and say often misrepresented, but (laughs) they're there nonetheless and they're part of the culture of witchcraft today. Um, So a lot of it is that. But first and foremost, I identify myself as a a witch. I'm a a practicing witch. And if I do describe myself with any labels, I usually say that I'm a folk witch. I'm a folk witch who is inspired by the magic of Wales, And that side of things, I'm inspired predominantly by the streams of folk magic that emanate from our land. So I look more so at the traditions of magical practice that have existed here for hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands of years, Um, and that is where I pull a lot of my influence from. However, my big thing that I try and tell everyone is I'm not, I do not stand here trying to claim that I am some ancient um, Welsh witch who has knowledge and power that stretches back into the deep antiquity of like ancient Wales. I'm very much a modern woman, a modern woman living in the modern world, and I'm simply inspired and informed by the history of magic here and the folkloric traditions of magic found in Wales woven into our folklore and into our history there is so much magic that I think we can glean so much inspiration from and that is what my practice is mostly based about uh, upon. I do all that I can to study that aspect of things so I will go and I will read old books that date back to say uh, all the way back to even the 13th century, the 9th century um, and then specifically I, I like looking at texts that come from the early modern period which delve into the folklore of magic in Wales and the complex world of witchcraft, because witchcraft is a strange subject when it comes to Welsh things, but it does exist here, we just call it something else, we call it Swin Gavarred, or we call it Hida Um So I like to look at those kind of things to inspire my practice, but then I also am uh, very rooted in the here and now, so I won't, say, be discouraged from looking at someone like Gemma Gary or Nigel Pearson and going like, oh yeah, I quite like that ritual that they outlined in that book too, so I'm going to incorporate that into this, maybe Welshify it a little, (laughs) and then make it my own. Um, So my practice is mostly informed and inspired by the past, but rooted in the here and now, and very, very much influenced by those that have come and coloured my life beautifully. So people like Christopher, people like Julie, there is a whole horde of people like that who are behind me, who uh, have inspired me. And I think the concept of inspiration in and of itself is a huge thing within the Welsh tradition. Um, We have this word in Welsh called awen, which basically just means divine inspiration. That's the closest translation we can give of it. But the awen comes to us when uh, we are touching something that is beyond ourselves, when we are reaching out into something that is beyond ourselves. And people can sometimes help you tap into that awen. And I'm very aware of the connections I've made with people. So, yes, my magic is inspired by the people I've met, the history of the magical practices and traditions of my land, as well as the folkloric traditions of my land. And also just the landscape itself, just walking in the landscape and existing in the landscape, you'll find a treasure trove of magic, I believe. So my practice is mostly oriented around that, as vague as that sounds. I hope that gives a little bit of an
0: insight into it. No, absolutely. I, is it awen that you said? Alwyn, yes. Alwyn, I love that. When you said the inspiration was there, before you even said the word and explained what it meant, I was just, I I was instantly finding inspired, and I, I, there's something really magical about being a witch who is inspired. And I think when you are, you know, in that zone of of. This is just my opinion, my personal, uh, my personal gnosis. When I'm doing my daily, my daily devotions, when I am taking care of not only my myself physically but spiritually, I am hit with pieces of inspiration all the time they come out of nowhere and i'm not saying that oh my god a spirit just whispered this to me but i am saying that when you are tuned into your environment your landscape your your sense of intuition whatever you want to kind of call it there is a divine inspiration that is reaching out that you're tuned into that you may feel the vibrations of so I, This is kind of silly, but sometimes I feel like every now and again, I'll be walking my dogs or I'll I'll be just exiting the apartment and I'll be like, I smell magic. (laughs) And it's weird because it'll be like a, a type of incense in the air. And it's not like it's coming from anywhere, but like I can feel there is something coast by, there's something near. And I have been inspired on random walks in my neighborhood, when I see a type of flower or I see a wild strawberry or, or I see, honestly, I've seen dead birds that have fallen directly into my path, that I will then give a burial to say some nice kind parting words and take their feet and tail feathers. And it's just one of those things where those types of things feel to me like divine inspiration. And I realize i'm trying to put words to something that i feel like is very difficult to put words to but i think a lot of people listening and you're nodding confirm that it's true
1: <laughs> i wonder mara before we um <clears throat> break into our next question i'm going to throw a curveball at you because um you keep at rightly so um saying things in welsh and while we didn't ask this question on the brief, I was wondering if you could explain, like, how important is the Welsh language to, like, how intrinsic is it to Welsh culture? And because it is intrinsic to Welsh, Welsh culture and wel- Welsh folk belief, how is it also imperative, um, but maybe not, like, in the you have to know it kind of way, but maybe, I don't know, you might have an opinion on that, but how is it imperative then to Welsh witchcraft?
2: So our language is inherently magical as it is. If you look into the history of the Welsh language and you delve into how it formulated into what it is today, uh, the Welsh language is related to ancient Brythonic. It's a very old, old language. And from ancient Brythonic, Welsh evolved, and this is um, from a book called, the, I think it's called The Welsh Bardic Tradition, um, and it's a book that delves into the history of the Welsh language and also the Bardic traditions of Wales. Um, The author of that book talks about how Welsh evolved from... Indo-European forms of ceremonial magic, which utilized the language in order to evoke feelings in people within communities where, um, so in in, in ancient Wales and in ancient Brythonic parts of the world, every king that ruled had a bard as, as a court bard. And when you hear the word court bard, I think a lot of people like to envision this man running around dressed in green, playing like a little guitar or something or whatever it is that they played during those periods in time, singing random songs about the king. And that's somewhat true, but they were also basically magicians. So when I think of the the court bard, I think of those, you know, when you watch those medieval inspired programs where there's like a king and he has a wizard that lives in the basement that does his spells and such for him. I kind of see the bard as being an element of that, not so much the the more medicinal or herbalist side of it, but the magical quality of a wizard that's attached to a a king, because the power of the bards was that they could make or break a king. They could very much decide whether or not the king was in favour of the people just by the words that they wove into the community via their poetry, via their songs. So they could um, raise the the soldiers of the king to be ready to fight they could like build up their spirits via their words their job was to sing songs about the king and to and to recite these beautiful ballads about how important the king was to helping everyone get by in life and such and they had power they believed very much so that words held power and so those who could weave words well were inherently powerful and that's in the history of our language so from that That inspired the bardic tradition which is a tradition of uh, poetry and and you know words that were utilized as a form of almost supplication to our culture not to a god or to uh, any divine figure but to the culture itself and to the landscape itself and the bardic tradition still exists to this day it's not something that is steeped in history and gone it's something that still exists and is still celebrated in wales today and the rules of that bardic tradition have not really changed throughout history at all. So the way in which we construct poetry in Welsh, the way in which we construct our englunion, which englunion is like an englyn, is a form of poetry which, if you were to translate it into the way that we would look at it as pagans, it's basically a spell but a song. It's a song spell, it's words that can cause an effect on people, that can cause change And the the rules of how to construct these different forms of poetry, they haven't changed because the Welsh language has not changed in that time either. It's stayed pretty much the same. Obviously, we need words for things like computer nowadays, but it barely has changed throughout history. And I love that. And um, I know that it might be controversial of me to say so, because I know a lot of people in Wales do not speak Welsh today. But our traditions are carried by our language. Our language is very much the anchor of our culture. It is what ties us together. I've always said to people, I don't don't consider somebody Welsh because they have a certain genetic disposition or because they're a certain skin colour or because they're from a certain place. I consider you Welsh if you're immersed in Welsh culture. And Welsh culture at its heart is carried by our language. And so to me, as a Welsh witch, the language inspires my magic tremendously. And we have so many varied words for magic and magical practice in general. And I think that is very telling of our our relationship with magic, because we don't just have one or two words. We have so many words that describe magic. And the words that we do use to describe magic, they're very similar to 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 words that describe other things. So, for example, the main word for magic, heard, which is the word that most Welsh speakers would use today to describe the word magic, we say heard, and that word, spelled a little differently, is also the word for all, or always. So, it's strange that it's almost like magic is all, it's always, it's always part of it. Uh, Same with words such as awen, awen does get translated today to inspiration, but if you look through our history, awen was this divine thing that connected the bards to the other world, so it was not just this inspiring force, it was something that was beyond ourselves that we tapped into, and the bards specifically tapped into, there's an old Welsh um, poem that says that, you know, Abad claimed that or which basically translates to the awen I sing and I need to bring it from the deep. And our word for the other world is anuvan, which means the deep. So they basically are bringing that inspiration from the other world. So not only do they believe that their words hold power, but that their words also come from an external source in the other world and come to them through this, com- this almost connectiveness that we all have to that otherworldly place and so I I believe that our language is inherently magical and I think it's important if we're connecting to the magical traditions of Wales that we at least make an effort with the language that we at least try and learn some of the words and put as much effort to speak to the gods in their native tongue and our language has also got this very resilient uh, spirit to it and I, I think I've mentioned in the past in other works that I've done where I've said I see the spirit of the Welsh language as very similar to the spirit of, say, queer people, because it does not matter how many times people have tried to stamp us out or pretend that we don't exist or pretend that we're dead. We're still here. And there's an old Welsh song that actually states the phrase, Rynia Maw which is like a huge anthem in Wales. And that phrase literally just means, we're still here. Despite everything that they've thrown at us, we're still here. People can try and say that our language is dead or that it doesn't exist anymore, but we're still here. There's still huge communities all across Wales that speak Welsh as their first language and it's inherently tied to our culture and to our land. And I hope I didn't get too preachy there because I can get very passionate about
0: my language. <laughs> no, that was
1: beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, that's uh, exactly what I, I guess, was looking for, but that sounds like I was trying to pull something out of you but i i had a feeling so i'm glad we i asked that question thank you for sharing that
0: i am too that was so beautiful and and you know there's something that already exists in magic, in my opinion, when it comes to music, when it comes to poetry, when it comes to something that can inspire a type of emotion within you, whether it's anger or rage or love or sadness or joy, those things alone are magical. But then to actually have the language speaking them, to be grounded in a history of magic, that was was absolutely beautiful. And I love that you, you kind of finished that statement by saying how it it connects to what it feels like to be queer and to be here because literally just yesterday I I, I made a statement saying we aren't just proud speaking of of pride it is pride month like speaking of of being proud we're not just proud because we're queer we're proud because we're here Mm -hmm. being queer is just another part of who we are but we're here we're still here and we're still going to be here and I love that that kind of it, it connected to that sense of who you are as a, as a native Welsh speaker.
2: Absolutely, <laughs>
0: it definitely does. I think um,
2: the way that I've described it in the past is it's how I connect my, 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 my identity as a Welsh person, my identity as a magical practitioner, and my identity as a queer person is that all three of those things that I love and appreciate, magic, being queer, and also being Welsh, they have persisted despite so many attempts to try and claim that they should not exist. <laughs> we are all still here and we persist and we will fight to the death with anyone who will dare try and stop
0: that. <laughs> so I'd like to ask, as a queer person, as a trans woman, has your, has your craft been shaped anyway by this, this part of your identity? Definitely. I think
2: being trans is an intrinsic part of who I am. And my witchcraft is also an intrinsic part of who I am. It's very much my whole life at the moment. And I think it would be very naive of me to try and claim that those two things are separate in any way, because it's part of the package of who I am. And being trans, I I really hope that this doesn't come across as condescending or like I'm trying to say that we see things differently, but being queer or being trans in general, I feel like we see the world a little differently to some people. And it's the same thing with being a witch. You see the world a little differently to most people. And in order to navigate those two worlds, you have to kind of accept that, that, you know, you're not going to see the world exactly as most people who don't believe in magic are. And in the same vein, as a queer person, you're not going to see the world in the same way that most heterosis people are. So I see those two things as being related. But then I also add that layer of, well, if that's the case, if I'm going to see the world differently to most people because I'm trans and most people are cis, then that should also be the case within the realms of witchcraft. Like, I'm going to perceive magic very differently to, say, someone who is straight and cis because I don't identify in that manner. And certain uh, certain topics within our magical world, so to speak will seem really different in my perspective things that make absolute certain sense to cis people might not make sense to me and might not gel with who i am and i've definitely navigated those areas within my practice um i i kind of to to give a little insight into my, my my beginnings i suppose of coming to terms with being trans i came out as gay when i was about 13 when i was very young and um, I already ran into a lot of trouble um, with my father and with certain people in my life because of that. But I knew from that moment, from almost the moment that I came out as gay, I knew I was trans. And that was, I was reminded of that fact the other day because I have this, I'm I'm very nostalgic, so I have this little memory box that is full of all the memories that I've had with my partner, because we've been together since I was 14, um, and they're all just in this box, all these like letters that we've given each other, all the, the greetings cards we've given each other throughout our lives, and there was this one particular letter that I wrote to him where Um, It was a list of things about myself. It was just, I'm bored, I'm up late at night, I'm going to write this letter to you to help you get to know me a bit better, because I want you to know certain things about me. And this was right at the start of our relationship. And one of the points on that letter was me saying, I believe in witchcraft, and I'm a witch, and also, like, magic is a huge part of my life, so you're going to have to deal with that. Little did I know he also felt the exact same way, (laughs) so he also started practicing witchcraft later in life. Um, But right under that point, after I told him about my interest in witchcraft, I said something along the lines of, um, I feel like I was not born into the right body, and that I was meant to be born a woman, and I haven't been, so there's something, I feel as though there's something deeply wrong with me, and it really hit me hard that That element of who I was was an intrinsic part of who I was, even as young as that, because I didn't come out as trans until I was 21, like many, many years later. And it really hit me that I must have suppressed it so hard for so long because of the negative reaction I had to coming out as trans um, at that age, at 13, that I just tried to be like, okay. I remember very vividly that my my brothers in particular, um, they were sat with me one evening and they said, hey, we're okay with you being gay. That's fine. That's cool. We can deal with that. At least you're not one of those weirdos who dresses up as a woman and thinks they're a woman. (laughs) And I think that really sunk into me because I realized, oh, wait, these these people in my life who do not fully accept me or I didn't feel like they accept me, they finally do now, but they've put that kind of boundary in place of, oh, we can accept this, but we can't accept if you're one of those. And I had this very nasty view of what it meant to be trans because of that. And I wouldn't, I can't lie, and I think I might anger a few pagans by saying this, but there were attitudes like that even in the pagan community that I came across. The first ever festival that I went to at 16, uh, Festival for Witches held in England, I ran into a very transphobic and homophobic coven who very outwardly said, they don't believe that trans people exist. They think they're all attention seekers who are highly sexual and disgusting. And that they, though they believe that people can be gay, they believe that being gay makes you less inherently magical and that they shouldn't be able to practice magic because they don't have the balance of heterosexuality within them. And I remember being outraged by that. So I guess my experiences growing up both, queer and as a witch have always been interconnected because people have made it so people have brought that into it and I remember from that young age at 16 hearing those words coming out of a coven leader's lips I remember getting infuriated and I remember making the stance in my mind that I'm gonna fight this I'm gonna do all that I can to try and stop this disgusting idea that people have in their heads of what it means to be gay and what it means to be trans, and I just, I didn't understand it. Especially in a community where so many people claim that they're more open and more accepting. Uh, It was very hard going to the first ever
0: festival I ever went to and hearing those words. And yeah, (laughs) I hope that makes sense. (laughs) You know, you really hit the nail on the head there with something. I identify with so much of what you just said, but you said one thing that really stuck with me just now, it was people made it so. People made it so. Mm -hmm. And one of the things as a queer person we have to recognize, honestly, almost across the world when it comes to even bigger picture ideas outside of witchcraft is to have the same equal rights as a cis hetero person. I have to have the kindness of the people who are in charge, who are elected, who will then give me the freedom to be treated equally. And when it comes to our smaller community, because a lot of times there is going to be a situation where cis hetero people are going to outnumber us, we still have to be in a community where we are not accepting a people who won't be accepting. We have to push this, we have to speak about this, we have to stand here and scream, I am here, period. And I like to believe that that type of coven, that type of craft, that type of mentality is being weeded out. I like to believe that. I don't think that may be altogether true, but I like to believe that we're progressing into an area, into a place where enough of these discussions are happening to where people can no longer make it so.
1: It's so funny to me when people will claim to like understand the complexities of gender, especially in a indigenous way and by indigenous i mean the indigenous peoples of of europe and welsh um uh, well uh wales (laughs) um when we we have evidence before the island was colonized by the romans we have like trans and queer people have always existed they will always exist they exist in almost every culture to some degree right and granted yes people people are going to come for me and be like that's an anachronism you can't say that trans people have always existed because you're placing an english word onto whatever (laughs) um we're using the language that we have now to frame what would have been in the past i can't hold space for every single um language that has a particular word for a third, fourth, fifth, and so on gender. But we know that there are these words, right? And so it's always very funny to me, the um, trans-exclusionary radicalism that comes from oftentimes the pagan community, the, uh, the witchcraft community as a whole, because it's inherently false, it's not true it never has been true because again we have anthropological historical um and and also lived experience going outside of the ivory tower like we just have lived experience of people always existing in these spaces um and oftentimes not only existing but being leaders in these spaces and being seen as Regarded, highly regarded, more powerful, um, or just by the very nature of of queerness, of of intersex people, of trans people, of of queer people, inherently being in touch with the other world deeper than perhaps somebody who doesn't fit into some of those boxes is. So, yeah, that was. I um, thank you for sharing that,
0: Mara. I've always been. A big believer, it's funny, I call it the Holy Trinity because I think of this idea of the Holy Trinity of the divine masculine and divine feminine creating the divine androgyne. And the magic is where that androgyne is created. And that is what we all do is we we tap into that source of that in-betweenness, which you know comes out in in many parts of our practices, liminal spaces, in-between worlds, uh and whatnot, crossroads, things like that. And I feel like this is just my opinion when people start talking about having to have a correct system of a cis hetero relationship of a divine masculine and divine feminine to create the magic and if you don't bring that together you can't i think in my opinion that's a huge misappropriation of what the divine feminine and masculine are because they exist in all of us i very much believe that femininity exists in me and it's a beautiful thing just as much as masculine exists in me and all of that comes together to create all of the oliveness the oliveness from a jar that's right the oliveness of who i am and i think that there are ways in which that we can recognize that historical framing has been somewhat bastardized and it's been bastardized by people who use it to it benefit so, um, I don't know, I think that these, I'm glad we're having these discussions.
1: Do you have any advice for queer or trans practitioners who are trying to find their way in witchcraft? I think now it's so much better than it was, um, even two years ago. Honestly, when I got on, on to uh, Instagram or the, the, the scene, whatever, um, I think now is is even better. Than it was when I started. So I know it was better when we originally started out um, learning witchcraft. It's a progression, but I still think even now there are people who are going to find themselves in hardship or confliction with. the gender binary and uh, the the issues of, of trans exclusionary radical feminism, um, do you have any advice for trans practitioners in finding their way in this big wide world of witchcraft?
2: Ooh, so I think that my first, not even piece of advice, just, just truth that every queer person or trans person specifically need to hear um, is that you belong, it doesn't matter what anyone else says, you do belong, and you do have a place in this world, because we've always been here, because we've always been existent in the magical aspects of life, and um, one piece of advice that I would always give someone, especially someone who was dealing with an understanding of, say, their gender identity, is find that representation in the ancient world, because it really helped me. I know it probably sounds really fickle and silly, but it really truly helped me find uh, a footing in this place when I started learning about, say, um, certain mythological figures who were quite obviously what we would nowadays call trans, <laughs> who were very much in these mythologies, in these stories, just as much as these very cis-straight hetero heroes of the the ancient world and such. We were there too, and we were represented in the stories. They might not be as well known, but we're there. And I know it'll sound really silly, and I, I hope I don't get cancelled for saying that I have an affinity for this story, but um, I remember when I first came out as trans, I became absolutely obsessed with the mythological story of uh, Ishtar's descent into the underworld and how she was rescued by Sushunamir, who was an entity who was created by the gods, who was devoid of um, gender or somewhere in the middle. They were created as this um, androgynous being who was not masculine, not feminine, but also both at the same time, and um, that Ishtar was saved by them, and they were cursed by ereshkigal Kigal, um, the underworld goddess, uh, to always be judged, to always be viewed as um, outcasts in society forever, and that people like them will always be viewed in that manner as well, that throughout uh, human history, uh, people who kind of break the boundaries of what it means to exist within gender shall always be or within the binary gender specifically shall always be seen as outcasts and be vilified for it. And then Ishtar turns and says, Oh gosh, I'm sorry I, I can't change that curse. But and we'll give you the power of prophecy and I will give you divine wisdom as as a kind of a peace offering because you did save me so I'll give you that. But then we have Lore surrounding the idea of the priests of uh, the priestesses of Ishtar, who who were very much trans by our standards, and that to me was deeply empowering when I first started on this journey of finding myself, um, reading those mythos and uh, those mythoses and coming to an understanding that we have always been here was deeply inspiring and influential, especially. When I was navigating the world of witchcraft, which can tend to have a very binary understanding of gender, especially when it comes to the concepts of, say, the divine and such, (laughs) it's definitely rooted in. And something that I will always say to queer people is make your voice heard. If you find something uncomfortable, or you you think that doesn't make any sense, and this is actually very exclusionary. Speak up. Don't let cis people, don't let uh straight people <laughs> tell you that you're not allowed to feel that way. Because I've been told I'm not allowed to feel that way. When I've t- uh, when I've stood up and said I don't like the concept of the divine feminine, divine masculine, it, it doesn't. It just makes it. It's an ick to me. I've been told by people who are cis, even um within. In the queer community I've been told they're just concepts you have to deal with it you don't have to, you don't have to incorporate it into your practice if it doesn't make sense to you and I get really frustrated with that because it's like I'm allowed to have an issue with it in my own practice thank you very much don't tell me what I'm allowed to feel because I feel this way for a reason and you know stand in your own truth and in your own power we have always been here, we have always been inherently magical, and witchcraft is at heart just purely transgressive in nature, so be transgressive, like if you are going against the flow, good, because as my lovely mentor Christopher Hughes says, it is only dead fish that go with the flow, so don't be a dead fish, swim against the current, go ahead, (laughs) and I love that, so yeah, I, I suppose if that makes any sense at all, those are my pieces of advice is that know that we belong here, know that you're allowed to be heard in the things that you're feeling, and know that we have always been here too, because there's so many stories that can inspire and inform us to and come to an understanding of just how much of a role we have played, not just in magic, but in human history as well. We've always been here, whether it was
0: by a different name or not, and we belong here. <laughs> Only dead fish go with the flow. I I just wrote that down. I am going to use that. I love it I did I I did love that Mm -hmm. so I'm curious you wrote a book Oh, I did. I loved your book. It was it was so informative. There was so much not only information in there. uh, There was folklore, there was spells, there were rituals, there were stories, there were personal anecdotes that I really, really, I I felt like I got to know not only you better, but I got to know the landscape of Wales better. Uh, Can you tell me kind of like what in what went into the process of writing this book? so I always had the idea for a book of this nature I just didn't think
2: I would be the one to write it I would kind of um if we're going to use somewhat new agey terms I would always try and manifest it you know like oh I want a book on Welsh witchcraft so that I can learn more about it and it just never came it never manifested itself it never came into being there would be books that would almost touch on it um Speaking of, from my experience, Christopher Hughes writes a tremendous amount of books on Welsh magical law, but his books focus more so on the Bardic tradition and on the mythology of Wales, which is amazing. And that was my my doorway, I suppose, into understanding these things better. But I was always deeply interested in folklore and folk magic and I wanted to know more about that and there was nothing. The books that did exist were academic and they were either inaccessible or very very expensive and so I could never get my hands on them. Um, There was a lot written in the Welsh language which I had the privilege of being able to read but I always thought to myself well I can't recommend that to people if they're learning about Welsh witchcraft I can't recommend Coelion Cymru which was a book written in 1938 And they're not all, they're not often, even if they are written in Welsh, they're not often, they're not ever, they're not ever written for witches by witches. It's always um, like that one I just mentioned, Coilion Cumberland, a book written in 1938 by a priest who was very much against witchcraft and such. We have a lot of books like that, which outline a lot of the magical traditions and beliefs of Wales, but nothing that really put it down in paper and also gave you an insight into how to incorporate that into a practice today. And that's what I always wanted. And I remember I voiced this to um, Christopher from a very young age, because he was already an author with Huellen, and I was like, oh, I kind of want to do that one day, but I don't know what I'll write about. And he would always push me and push me and push me and say, you need to get your voice out there because your voice matters, so do it. Um, And I didn't believe him fully. I was, I was always of the opinion that my voice didn't matter. Who cares about what I have to say? Who am I? Like, I don't, I'm not anyone special. Those are the kind of things I always told myself and put myself down about. And then it reached a point where I, I feel like it had been something like a decade of me wishing and hoping for this book. And it just never came. So I sent a message to Christopher and I said, would you mind if I did it? Would I be stepping on your toes? Because you already write about Welsh magical things. Would I be stepping on your toes? And he instantly rejoiced and was like, yes, just do it. I've been waiting for this moment. And he was deeply inspiring in that regard. He always tried to push me to be the best I could be. And I'm very thankful for that. So um, it was around the Covid lockdown, the first lockdown we ever had, and I decided, you know what, I've got nothing else to do. (laughs) I'll sit down and I'll write a book. So the book only took about three or four months to write, but it was a compilation of everything that I'd learned in my entire life. Basically, it was a mixture of the things I learned at school. It was a mixture of the things I learned with Julie and Chris and all the other people that I've met throughout my lifetime that practiced with me or uh, gave me a little bit of that how and a little bit of that inspiration. And also my studies into folk magic and witchcraft and all this stuff. So everything that I'd already been learning and everything that I'd experienced, I tried to incorporate them as much as possible, but also try and make it accessible so that it was not in the same vein as a lot of the academic texts that do exist on magic and witchcraft in Wales. It was something that people could easily get their hands on and easily give them a foundational knowledge of it. And I wrote it in, as I said, three months, and I was very happy with it. I was very, very happy with how it turned out. And then I rewrote it about six times. So that's the general nature of writing a book. Um, But what went into it, really? I always say to people, this book is my love letter to my culture. It's my love letter to my land. uh, And it's also my love letter to the magic that I tapped into and that inspired me to be who I am today. So it was in a way, my way of giving back to everything that had inspired me throughout my life uh, and to these entities and deities that I work with on a daily basis within my practice. I put it out there that I was gonna do this and they gave me the resources of, I know this will sound probably extremely fluffy and horrible, but there was one book that was really important that I had as a resource whilst studying for this book so that I could have it as a part of my bibliography. And it was 500 pounds on Amazon and i could not afford it so i i kind of put it out there like look if you want this book written spirits whoever's listening if you want this book written you'll have to make this possible for me and then out of nowhere i got a phone call off a random bookshop that was in hay on y in wales and they said yeah we've got this book and we follow you on instagram Um, and we thought you might be interested we can sell it to you for about 13 pound if you want and it was that exact book that I needed. So that moment for me was inherently magical because I felt like something listened, something heard me. I needed this and they it came to me. It just literally landed on my doorstep. So, yeah, this book is very much all of my love and passion for Wales and Welsh magical traditions put into uh, a very introductory guide and a foundational guide into these things. I'm hoping more books will come out in the future, because as I said, though this is my huge love letter, it is still very much just touching, scraping the surface of what we have here in Wales to go off of. And there's so much more that I think needs to be delved into. And if no one else is going to do it, I might as well. And I think that's a piece of advice I'd give anyone who wants to write a book. Don't get stuck in that cycle of who wants to hear my voice, because somebody will,
0: trust me. And your voice is important and valid and needs to be heard. So put yourself out there. (laughs) And, you know, I remember listening to you on a podcast talk about Putting in the folklore and being like uh, some of the, the folklore, the mythology, and certain things, and being like, I'm not sure if this is the part people are going to like, or I'm not sure if this is as important as some of the other things I'm putting in there. And then lo and behold, it was literally everyone's favorite part of the book. It was some of my favorite parts of the book, learning those folk tales, the, the history. Um, do you have a favorite? Oh, gosh. Folklore is a huge aspect of my practice in general,
2: and I love studying it. And I think um, before I get into my favourite folktale, I just have to say, I think people overlook folklore a little too much sometimes and how much we can glean from folktales as it is. You can read a folktale and read about, say, um, this person who was tricked by a spirit and then they went and they picked a piece of the rowan tree and put it under their bed and then the spirit went away. There's so much magic just in a little story like that, that you can glean from. From for modern day practice. Um, My favorite folktale is actually quite uh, funny. It's a funny folktale because I I think this is something I can imagine either myself or a lot of the witches I know doing today. Um, So there's a story of the conjurer and the drunk man, and it's a story that I've only read in one book that comes from the Welsh tradition. And it goes something like this. So there was a conjurer who uh, lived somewhere in South Wales at the time, and he was very renowned for his magical skill and talent. He helped the community. He did all sorts of beautiful things for the community. But he was also very feared because he was said to consort with malicious spirits. And he was said to go into the woods and conjure all sorts of magical beings uh, in the dead of night. But one night he was sat in the pub having a drink and this local man who was very cocky and very full of himself was very drunk and he walked up to him and he said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you've got any magic at all. I don't believe any of this nonsense that you spout, that you contact spirits and such. Prove it to me. Prove to me that you are a conjurer and that your magic is real. And the conjurer turns around and he goes, I'd be happy to. But I'm not just going to do a ritual just for you. You have to wait until I get a client. Once I get a client, I'll come collect you. A couple of weeks go by, and the drunk man, of course, completely forgets that that happened. But the conjurer does not forget. So when he does get a client, he eventually goes knocking on this man's door and says, "This is what happened a couple of weeks ago. You challenged me. I'm taking you up on the challenge. I've got a client who has lost something that's very valuable to her. I need to contact some spirits to see if they know where that item is because one of his uh skills that he did was help find lost objects so he went off to the woods with this man who was very cocky and very like i, I don't believe in any of this it's all nonsense nothing's going to happen they went into the woods they went to a secluded little area and the conjurer drew a circle on the ground said a few words and some rhymes that sounded very strange to the man and lo and behold outside of the circle suddenly a spirit was conjured this massive, a uh, larger-than-life spirit was conjured up before them and had this big, booming voice and said, what do you summon me for? And then the story kind of um, gets weird there because it's just this constant cycle of the conjurer summoning a spirit, asking, hey, Shani Lois down the road, she's lost her purse. Do you know where it is? The spirit going, Nah, you'll have to ask someone else. And then the spirit being sent away and another spirit being conjured over and over and over again because he had to keep asking until he got the answer that he wanted. All the while, this man who had challenged him was clinging onto him, shaking in his boots, going, oh my God, this stuff's real. Uh, I don't like this. And eventually... He conjures up a spirit which appears in front of them and he appears as this man who is dressed entirely in white robes and these white robes are billowing be- uh, behind him and such. And he walks up to the circle and asks, what have you summoned me for? And the conjurer says, Shani Lois has lost her purse. Do you know where it is? And the spirit goes, oh my gosh, you've contacted me just for that. This is where her purse is. Go sort that mess out. And the spirit vanishes. And the man, he noticed that when this white-robed spirit appeared, everything went very calm and quiet, including his heart rate. Everything just stopped instantly. There was something different about that white-robed spirit. So he turned to the conjurer and said, who was that? That was not a normal spirit. And the conjurer just turned and says, that was my master. And we don't know anything more about that, but the concept of a man in white robes is something that comes up quite often in Welsh folklore for some reason. This man in white robes, he's often described as a Huid, um, which is a gray man, someone gray who is strange. And uh, a lot of people when I've mentioned this always bring up Gandalf for some reason. (laughs) But um, it's a story that I love because it shows the playful nature of the conjurers and the cunning folk back then. They were very whimsical and flamboyant characters, and I'm often critiqued for being too much by a lot of Welsh practitioners, I will be honest, and rant a little. I've seen people leave comments and Reviews of my book and such on Welsh witchy groups on Facebook and Twitter and such where they'll say, oh, her writing is okay, but she's a bit of a twat, isn't she? She runs around in ancient ruins um, with that orange hair of hers, flicking around, shouting all sorts of stuff and dancing around like an idiot. And I'm like, you know what? If you don't like my flamboyant weird nature, you wouldn't have liked any of the famous magical practitioners we had in the past because they were all described like that. They were all (laughs) described as flamboyant weirdo and outcasts so I just love that story because it's the type of thing I would do if someone came to me and said prove
0: it I'd be like all right come on (laughs) and I love it there was something about I don't know this idea of like the man in white robes and it was giving me like oh is he like the counterpart to the man in black (laughs) it's just an interesting like uh observation but I love that story and and that story wasn't in your book was it no, it wasn't. That was one that I didn't include because, as, as you said,
2: when I was writing the book, I didn't think that people really cared about reading the folklore because I I have so many books on folklore and they're quite accessible. You can find uh, one of the best ones is W. Jenkins Thomas's The Welsh Fairy Book, and they're all just very easily accessible. You can get British Goblins by Wirt Sykes for something like 99p on Amazon and such. They're very accessible and very easy to find, but people don't seek them out. And yet when I wrote my book, thinking, oh, people don't seek them out, so they must not want them, suddenly, every review I've read, every message I've received, a lot of people have said, these are my favorite parts, the bits where you go into the stories, so I think, uh, I hope that I helped people realize that the stories have value in them, and that we can glean a lot from them, Um, that story
0: is one that I absolutely love, and I need to include in a future book, (laughs) I think, and you know, I feel like, We're kind of entering into a, maybe a storytelling time period, if you will. I feel like many of us are starting to recognize that the same sort of traditional craft that has been modernized and and passed down over the past, you know, a little over half a century Some of it is really missing some of the parts that shaped it in the first place. And so we're trying to find them again. We're looking up these old stories, people who are into, um, you know, Hellenistic uh, deity worship, they're not just going along with changing out the Wiccan lord and lady for, you know, uh, Diana and Apollo. They're getting into all of the Dianic slash Artemisian uh, uh, lore. They're getting into the history of some of these stories. And I feel like this was such a beautiful opportunity to hear about some Welsh Welsh folklore. And I love, that was one of my favorite parts of the book. So I'm grateful you shared this new one with us. Yes. And yeah, the,
2: the the one thing I want to say as well, just in case anyone's interested in listening, is that the as I said, the the white the man in white is something that I'm really fascinated by it at the minute because I don't understand it completely. Um, but there's a charm, there's an old charm from uh, Wales as well, a protection charm that was found that was meant to protect people from illness, from fire, from disaster and all things. And this charm, as, as I'm sure most people who might be interested in charms and traditional forms of folk magic and such are aware, the charms tended to have a very Christian leniency to them they call upon powers such as the holy trinity god saints and such and though the start of the charm starts with which is this call to you know like oh we call to god and we call to john the baptist to help us with this charm the ending of the charm is um which translates to and the gray man in his white robes was drawing a veil against all souls and hell. So literally this gray man in his white robes comes up a lot and I, I, I really want to
0: delve into that too.
2: And if there's any academics listening who might know more about that, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs>
0: have, you, have you personally designed any of your own craft, not taken it direct from history, but reinvented and designed the parts of your own craft around the folklore from your land?
2: Oh, definitely. Um, there's a few folkloric elements that I try and incorporate as much as possible. So, for example, um, we have a goddess in Welsh mythology who is very much associated with flowers, and her name is Blodead. Um, Her story is that she was literally a maiden who was created from flowers. So when people work herbally, and even in my book, when I wrote about herbal magic, they tend to focus on bladeev who is this floral maiden um in her story she's also turned into an owl later on and certain she becomes bladeev so she becomes she goes from bladeev which means um of the flowers to bladeev which means flower face which was an old colloquial term for for a an owl in Welsh uh culture so Though most people tend to focus on her when they do herbal things, in my personal practice, I do call to her sometimes, but there's another entity that I call to and view as a little bit of a goddess. And she is mostly associated with water for most people, because she is quite well known, but she's mostly associated with water when other people tend to work with her. And she is the lady of the lake from the story of Hina Van Um, it's a story that comes from an area of South Wales, and she is a, a fairy maiden that supposedly rose from a lake. And there's a whole story about her, um, the Lady of Hinnabandwagh. And it's all to do with, like, the fairy bride motif and the taboos of what it means to marry a fairy woman. So the story ends up being that she marries a mortal man. She puts a taboo that he can't hit her more than three times. He does. She goes away. She takes all his her fairy gifts with her. Um, which include a bunch of cattle and such, leaving the man completely poor, but they had children together, so she couldn't leave her two sons completely uh, dismal and in poverty, so she would visit the sons, the sons would come up to the lake and she would walk out of the lake, and she would Uh, take them down to this place called um, Nansamethakon, I think it's called, uh, which is the dingle of the herbalists, basically, the dingle of the medicine people. And she would take them down to this dingle and she would point out all the flowers to them and point out all the herbal um, things that they could do with these flowers. And she would teach them all sorts of medicinal properties of plants. And this is not just folklore, this is also history, because we have this huge manuscript called The Physicians of Madvai, uh, which is an old 12th century manuscript, which details a shit ton of medicinal properties of herbs and plants that was utilised by uh, medicinal herbalists in Wales in the 12th century and prior. And this knowledge is really advanced. Uh, a lot of historians have looked at this manuscript and gone, this is not of the 12th century. This is the kind of medicinal properties that were attributed to plants and the medicinal knowledge that we would expect in Europe like hundreds of years later, not in the 12th century. This is ridiculous. And then this folklore was attached to it of this fairy maiden teaching her sons the medicinal properties of plants. And that's supposedly where the the knowledge found in that manuscript comes from, is that we learned the art of healing via plants, via herbs, from a fairy, from a woman who comes from the other world. And so I see her as quite a goddess in my practice. um, And she is who I call to if I want to say, do a little bit of wart cutting, do a little bit of plant work. If I want to work with the spirit of a plant, I will first call to her to help me understand it better. Because she obviously had that connection to plants. And perhaps it's just something that's inherent to anyone who lives in the other world. Perhaps they all have a knowledge of that. But she specifically plays such a role in the folklore of where our understanding of plants come from, that I like to take inspiration from that as well. Um, so that's one way that I've done it. I don't know if that's what you were looking for, but that's one way in particular that I did it.
0: Absolutely. Is this the same character or a lady of the lake from, say, King Arthur stories?
2: Not quite. So she, a lot of the Arthurian tradition is kind of, um, I like to refer to it as uh fan fiction because it was almost like there were these very old myths that come from mostly Wales, Cornwall and the north of France and then eventually they were all compiled together and made into this epic mythology um, by mostly Geoffrey of Monmouth and then the Arthurian tradition was born of that which is the Arthurian tradition we know today. It is theorized that probably the, the Lady of the Lake in that story is inspired by this Lady of the Lake and other Lady of the lakes that we've seen in various facets of folklore as well so though it probably is inspired she is different because her story doesn't connect with Arthur in that way but Arthur does have a Welsh
0: origin so there probably is more of a connection than people think. I loved learning the story about the dragon on the flag you wrote about in your book because I grew up I I remember uh, I was in in English and I read um once and Future King, which was a rendition or a reinterpretation of Le Morte d'Arthur. And I remember certain parts of these stories about King Uther and like the Pendragons and and, and the fighting of the dragon and then the, the dragon that was living under the castle that was being built. And, and there's multiple versions of these stories that have been kind of Kind of change depending on which channel wants to put on a new sci-fi made for tv television version of <laughs> you know what i'm talking about not sci-fi um, and that's i sci-fi. know exactly what you're talking about yes. uh i feel yes. like
1: that's a very um maybe it's not an intrinsically american thing but like uh, mara i don't know if you know what sci-fi the sci-fi channel is
2: is that the one that's spelled like S Y F Y? Yes. Yes. We and
1: do it's have that too. it's um it's literally, I mean, sometimes there were some bangers on there. Let's not Oh yeah. Lie. But it is every like it is the compilation, and yes, I said compilation of every <laughs> like sci-fi fantasy like dump of any made for tv movie bad series it was so popular i feel like in the early 2000s the 2000s and 10s you know it's funny to look back on it now because because the the graphics were just so
0: oh when merlin the made for tv movie merlin it came out in like two parts because there was lady at the lake there was queen mab there was king arthur and Mm -hmm. helena bottom Carner played morgan le Fay. there was like a lot of of, and and she was beautiful as it. I mean, it was a great story. I still sometimes watch it for comfort, but now it's years later. I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this is definitely made for TV. But I have a question. So in your book, back on track here, um, in your book, you write about uh, the witch light right or the witch's light right and I loved it. I recommended it on my page on multiple platforms for people who are looking or or unsure about what to do for, say, something like a daily practice. I felt like it was a beautiful ritual that could be used for certain purposes or adapted in almost any craft for as a daily practice. Can you tell me more about that? Right. Yeah. So I I I know that in many traditions
2: of witchcraft, there's already this idea of um, like witch fire and such, mm-hmm. and the idea of uh, connecting to our inner power, I don't. I don't think the witch fire really fully connects to the idea of witch light, like I kind of talk about. But it's something that I've seen kind of referenced slightly, and um, I remember being somewhat inspired by those kinds of things. But then when I was. Researching into witchcraft in Wales when I was much younger, um, I remember I was reading a book, and in particular, that book said that strange lights were always associated with witches. So, if, for example, deep in the forest, far away from human, con- like anything going on, if the villagers would look out over the landscape and see strange lights going on in the woods or over on the coastal path or whatever, they would always associate it with magic. They would always say, Oh, someone's getting up to some ujibuji over there so that was kind of the the general view in Wales of Magic. It was strange lights and things that do not seem like they should be there, um, and we also have this idea of the Echichtan, which is the um, the the fire of the elves or the fire of the the, the demons. So um, Echicht is a strange word because it could mean elf, but it can also mean demon. Um, but the Echicht, echicht are no these, potato.
1: yeah, <laughs> same thing.
2: <laughs> but the Echicht are these like almost elemental beings who exist in the landscape, who um, inhabit the very force of nature itself. They they are the, the spirits that ride on the wind. They are the spirits that are found in the skies and in the seas. They are the spirits that run through the meadows and such, and they cause a lot of mischief. But there's also the Ekech Dan which is the same thing, but fire. Uh, Dan is a, a mutated version of Tan, which is a Welsh word for fire. And the Ekech Dan they're not seen as highly malevolent, but they are basically what one might think of if they think of, say, the will of the wisps and such. So they are seen as these orbs of light or orbs of fire that just kind of float around in the landscape. And sometimes they lead you to very treacherous situations where you might end up dead if you follow them. Uh, But that's, you know, for mortals. And um, you could end up in situations that are quite sticky if you follow them as well, but they can also be quite mesmerizing and quite beautiful. So there was these two concepts going on in my head of the fire of the elves, which are these floating balls of light, and then also strange lights being associated with witchcraft and magic. And I thought, well, we kind of have this strange belief as well in Wales that magic is inherent. It's in us. It's completely of us. And the reason I say I think most witches today would agree with that. It's not just something we have that's strange in Wales. I think most witches today would believe we are intrinsically powerful. We have magic within us. But when we look at the cultural context of, say, magic in other parts of the world, that wasn't always the case. Magic usually came from an external force, such as the devil. The devil would illuminate people's way and, uh, uh, well, that's kind of a modern (laughs) understanding, but the devil would at least bestow gifts upon people if they were to give him their soul or something. That was kind of the way in which magic operated in many parts of the world. But that wasn't the case in Wales, because when we look at the witch trials, the, the very few that did happen in Wales, because there weren't that many at all, I think, out of the 40-odd witch trials that did happen, only eight people were convicted, and of that eight, only about four were killed, um, and compare that to England, where, like, 500 people were killed. It's huge. There were more witch trials per county in England than there were in the entirety of Wales as a country. Um, But in the rare occasion that they did happen, the devil didn't really play a role, and we don't have as much of a figure that stands as, like, the one who gives witches power. Witches just had power, they were just intrinsically magical, and that is echoed as well in, say, cursing traditions, where it was believed that everybody had the ability to curse, everybody has this intrinsic power within them that they can tap into. And I started thinking about it, kind of trying to understand this concept a little better. And then I, I did a few workings and a few rites, did a little bit of soul searching, so to speak, via meditation and trance work, where I tried to understand what could I glean from this for my practice. And I remember very vividly the first time I ever encountered the idea of the witch light was when I was um, taking part in some trance work. And I remember very vividly approaching this entity and they just touched the the very middle of my chest and my entire body started glowing. And they kind of tapped my chest in a very condescending manner and they went, "Mm, you need to do that a bit more. You need to glow a little more. And I remember thinking, oh wow, I've kind of communed with some very vicious drag queen in trance that wants me to glow more, but okay. So I came out of that, and I I kind of journaled about it and thought about it for a long time, and that's when I kind of stumbled upon this idea in my head of, oh, when we awaken the power within us, we, we glow, we shine, and we have this almost a luminous quality to us whether it's apparent in our face or whatever we we do shine a little bit when we tap into that internal power that we have and so what can we do to tap into that in situations where we might need a bit of a boost or a bit of a help? And that's kind of where the Witchlight came from. It was all these interconnected threads that led me to doing it for the first time. And then I had to write it for the book and I struggled. I struggle with writing exercises and rituals. I don't know why, but I'm, I'm a very, um, I don't know. I'm a very fo- practice focused person when it comes to my craft. Uh, but then trying to put that into words for other people is always very difficult. How do I ensure that they understand exactly where I'm coming from? But I, I hope that the witch light right in there kind of illuminates the, I illuminates, <laughs> pun, um, illuminates the idea of what I was trying to get to, which is the Witch Light, right, is focused on trying to connect to that intrinsic power that we all hold and awakening that side of yourself that can tap into the unknown, the numinous, the, the aspects of life that most people rarely ever even scratch the surface of, uh, yet alone try and immerse themselves into. So that
0: was the intention behind it, and I hope it kind of held a quality of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And you actually just kind of confirmed something from because I have had spirit communication that was condescending as fuck. And it, it was it was quite like, oh, really, you're asking that question? No, this is what you do. And it's hard to explain all of these things are hard to put into words. Writing ritual is hard to put into words because Mm -hmm. so many times, the first time we come up with the idea of it is experiential. And -hmm. that experience is not all, I mean, it's sometimes not always the funnest. Sometimes it's moving and emotional and sometimes it's being berated by spirits. And and I I love that you experienced that too, because now I'm not alone. (laughs) They can be quite shady bitches, can't they? (laughs) They can, imagine shades. <laughs> that was <laughs> that was good, Marshall. Thank you. I can pun. I can pun too.
1: um mara can you share if you're working on anything um new presently or anything that you have to share we know you have a podcast and you can definitely tell us about that because i've i have been very bad at at listening to podcasts for the past like month or so but i really want to listen um because i know you go into some folklore and mythology on there as well but do you have anything that you're working on currently that you can share
2: Uh, So currently I am a bit of a mess, and I'm sure many people can relate to that, I'm all over the place, but um, I'm, I'm working on a second book, which hopefully I won't say anything about it, because I haven't actually proposed it to any publisher yet, and hopefully they'll pick it up if I do send it in, but it's something that's very close to my heart, and something that I hope somebody will want to publish, because it is within the veins of Welsh things still, but specifically one one specific aspect of uh, Welsh folklore and culture so that's something that I'm working on at the minute and I have very little confidence in so I'm avoiding it a little um but I also am currently translating an old Welsh book which is filled with occult stuff and hopefully I can send that to a publisher at some point as well or I'll just publish it myself I don't care I <laughs> just want it out there because it's a tome that has never been translated into English before and it's filled with the most amazing aspects of Welsh magical culture so that's definitely something that I'll working on as well so keep an eye out but specifically I'm working really hard at the minute on my podcast and my uh... I say working very hard, I do it very badly, but my online presence, I suppose, and trying to um, put something out there for my YouTube channel and my um, Patreon and everything all at once, it it kind of tires me sometimes, but I'm trying. Uh, And the podcast is the one I'm most proud of at the minute because it's I think it's working because people like, seem to like it. Um, So the podcast, the focus of the podcast is Welsh magic and Welsh folklore, obviously, for who I am. Um, So far, most of my episodes have been interviews. So I've interviewed amazing people. Christopher Hughes, who I've mentioned a few times tonight, um, the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order. I have interviewed him. He's an amazing person because he is he has so many facets to him. He's a druid, he's a drag queen, he's a death prof- professional, a mortician. So he is, he's just got this really wide understanding of life. And um, I interviewed him specifically about how to find magical pathways and such within the Welsh tradition. And he gives such an insight into so many things. And then I've also interviewed people such as C.C.J. Ellis, who is an amazing uh, non-binary artist from Wales who breathes life into um, Welsh monsters and mythical beasts and has a book coming out on that very subject, Welsh Monsters and Mythical Beasts. Um, I'm also going to be interviewing people like Celtic Shan, who is very big on TikTok. She's a a Celtic scholar who is not a witch. So we're going to be talking a little bit about how academics and witches can sometimes butt heads because we disagree on things. (laughs) And then um, I'm also going to be talking to people such as Jenna Tullandrew and uh, Dr. Gwilym Morris, who is amazing as well. But beyond that, I'm hoping that in future I can do podcast episodes that rather than being interviews with other people, they will instead be an in depth look into certain folkloric elements of Welsh magic or certain stories so I'd love to do one where I just read a story to the audience and then we delve into it you know like what can we glean from this what can we ascertain from this about Welsh culture and Welsh magic so the podcast is just in its very early beginnings um, but I, I hope people are enjoying it and if you want to listen to it it's called the Welsh Witch Podcast very easy and it's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everything like that and then also keep an eye out for any future projects as well if you're interested in learning about Welsh magic and folklore because I am working on stuff I just need to actually get my bum
0: into gear and put something into action. (laughs) I love that I've listened to all the episodes so far and I love this idea of you reading a a a, a folk tale and then discussing it more especially because you said something earlier about how a folk tale might have like oh you're being bombarded by a spirit go to a rowan tree, take a branch put it under your Bed and then it won't bother you anymore. There are so many parts of modern witchcraft that are inspired by these stories, but we are unaware of the stories they originated from. Um, I was up just read I think we talked about this at one point, but like there's a there's an old Grimm's fairy tale called the Juniper Tree. And for me, it inspired an entire curse rite based off of using a juniper branch or, or juniper uh, uh honestly, any part of the Juniper, and I loved this idea, but I haven't really seen that being, um, we talk about folklore, witchcraft, we talk about folk magic, but that line between the story and forming the work isn't always drawn as clearly, so I'm excited to see more from you. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you Mara for being here so much we're so happy to have you uh, to our listeners you've been listening to southern bramble a podcast of crooked ways. I'm Marshall the witch of southern light, you can find me on TikTok and instagram at Witch of southern light or uh, Twitter at Marshall wsl and on Redbubble. You can find me at Marshall WSL as well. I have links in all of my platforms for artwork and, and, and photography projects that you can get on merchandise. I need to plug myself more. I put art on the internet for people to buy.
1: And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram and Twitter as well. Now that you've plugged, I'm going to plug too. Plug away. A, <laughs> I'm a perfumer, um, and and magical mongerer. So I sell things. And um, by the time this comes out, I should be back to doing readings again. So um, I do do magical consults. Mara, thank you so much for being here today. Where can people find you and shamelessly plug away?
2: Oh well, thank you both for inviting me on and being so wonderful. I hope I haven't talked your ears off too much, but um, I'm Mara Starling, so you can find me at Mara Starling pretty much everywhere. I'm on the TikTok, I'm on the Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Apparently, I'm also on just pretty much anything. Just find me, um, and I run a Patreon group. So if you wanted to join my Patreon and support me and help me to put more Welsh things in out into the world, then you can come there as well. And I have a bunch of Patreon exclusive content that nobody else gets to see and of course if you'd like to listen to the Welsh Witch Podcast then that's available through Spotify and Apple Podcasts and my book Welsh Witchcraft A Guide to the Spirits Law and Magic of Wales is available now through most book retailers so wherever you uh, buy your books from usually you should be able to find it there but try and support your independent booksellers if possible and thank you again for having me on.
1: Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. We wanted to thank our top-tier Patreon supporters by name. V, Timothy, The Witch of Patapsco Forest, The Modern Babylon, The Lady Ghost, C Shaw, Pamela, Nicolette, Keith, Josie the Mountain Troll, Jens, Jennifer, Jennifer Times 2 Giles, Cindy, CDJ, Anastasia
0: Beaverhausen, and Adity. Thank you all so much.